This video is part of an audiobook series featuring robots by the MIT Press Essential Knowledge Series by John Jordan in 2016. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel, find me on Spotify, or check out my website for downloads. Chapter 7. Robots and Economics Given that robots have been performing assembly line tasks for nearly 50 years, it is somewhat surprising how little is known about the relationship of robots to productivity and unemployment, or and employment. As robotics expands from assembly line to supply chain and eventually to service applications, the use of robots will affect more people and thus presumably move the issue closer to mainstream discussion. Do robots take human workers as jobs? There's a thought experiment in which you're asked to take the position of an engineer in 1890 and project the amount of horse manure in New York City in 1920. Literal or linear extrapolation produces a frightening result, which of course never happened. The invention of the automobile shifted the externalities of transportation, and instead of staggering amount of horse manure in 1920, we got suburbs, McDonald's, high-speed roadways, and dozens, dozens of other side effects starting in 1930 and continuing on to the present. Something of the same situation applies today with regard to the impact of information and soon robotic technologies on unemployment. It's easy to assume that ATMs put bank tellers out of work, for example. President Obama implied as much in a speech in 2011. The evidence, however, suggests otherwise. The number of bank tellers increased from about 450,000 to 527,000 in the first 20 years of ATM technology. Whether there might have been an even larger job increase without ATM technology is, of course, impossible to know. The same goes for robots and automobile jobs. Unemployment in Detroit has a variety of causes, and it's impossible to isolate robots as a decisive factor, given the rise of Japanese and later Korean automakers, ongoing subsidies to national champion automakers in some countries that prevent a market shakeout, declining rates of automobile ownership, the state of labor unions outside the industrial Midwest, and the contribution of pensions and healthcare costs to big three labor economics. Note that both self-serve gas pumps and ATMs are early examples of human-robot partnership. Self-service, whether at Amazon.com, the gas station, the airport kiosk, self-checkout, or wherever customers often do the work of employees without thinking, has to have had affected employment, but accounting for its subtle, long-term effects is difficult if not impossible. The effect of robots on unemployment will be difficult to measure, particularly because it cannot be calculated in the absence of robots, human pilots, mechanics, programmers, or other tenders. Raw numbers will be of limited value and will need to be compared to alternative estimates, especially at the level of GDP and national employment figures where they can, there can be no control population. But it's important to underline the key finding to date. Unlike farmers who moved to the cities as agriculture industrialized, we have few visible indicators of the effect of computers, much less robots, on work and, un and employment. Do robots increase unemployment? Nobody really knows. Eric Brynjolfsson and Andrew McAfee of MIT in Race Against the Machine suggested that the sheer speed and wide influence of digital innovation have prevented most people, skills and knowledge grow slowly, in organizations, business tasks and processes haven't changed fast enough either, from keeping up with the actual pace of change. 
Thus, the jobless recovery from the 2008 recession cannot be blamed on information technologies, but neither can they be said to have played no role. According to one school of thought, information technologies coincide with, and may be responsible for, a hollowing out of the U.S. workforce. Stagnant middle-class wage growth is well-documented and likely has many contributing causes. One of these can be observed as computers take on more and more complex tasks, displacing people who formerly performed them within a job description. Widespread outsourcing of payroll, an essential function that delivers no competitive advantage, even when done well, to ADP and other firms has caused the near-complete demise of the payroll clerk, for example. David Autor, an economist at MIT, contends that when a new task is when a job task is new, people are needed to perform it because humans can adapt, analyze, and improvise. As the task gets better understood and codified, machines can take over. The hole in the middle refers to vulnerable jobs that are neither low wage and highly physical, nor high, high wage and highly cognitive. Unfortunately, workers whose jobs are displaced struggle to find alternative employment in some new category. Experience shows that such workers are neither geographically portable, sometimes because of family ties or the effect of underwater mortgages, nor able to land jobs for which their skills might be useful, but their professional vocabulary, personal network, or earnings expectations are not. Downward mobility requires difficult adjustments. Will new robots displace more jobs than they create? The economic theory traditionally invoked in these situations suggests that labor-saving innovations free workers to perform work that adds more value. Farmers could stop tilling the soil by hand on small plots when first horses and later tractors made it possible for them to farm ever larger fields. Today, roughly 2% of the U.S. population not only feeds the other 98%, but exports a significant quantity of crops and foods as well. Such a ratio would be inconceivable a hundred years ago. MIT's Autor makes an important point. Just because a task can be automated does not mean that it will. Within the same industry, and indeed the same company, automation depends on labor economics. Nissan Motor Company uses more robots at its factories in Japan than it does at those in India, where labor is considerably cheaper. As of 2013, Japan's unemployment rate was 4% versus 7.4% in the United States. Meanwhile, as of that same year, the International Federation of Robotics reported that Japan had 323 robots per 10,000 workers, whereas the United States deployed 152 robots per 10,000 workers in the general workforce, up from 72 only 10 years prior. Thus, at the macro level, Japan had more than twice as many robots, proportional to the workforce, but roughly half the unemployment as compared to the United States. Judging from this example at least, it would seem to be hard to prove that robots necessarily give rise to higher unemployment. But the Japanese economy does not resemble the U.S. economy in most respects. Ethnic diversity, population density, extractive industries like mining, farming, fishing, and energy, and ratios of imports to exports differ considerably between the two countries. Japan is aging rapidly and admits far fewer immigrants. Attitudes towards robots in the two countries are conditioned by extremely different cultural milieus. Thus, it would be premature to cite Japan as definite proof that robots do not contribute to higher unemployment.
It is also easy to envision a scenario in which robots constitute a reserve army of labor, maintaining downward pressure on wages. Those Indian auto workers have a strong disincentive to strike, knowing that Nissan has robots in waiting for when wages get sufficiently high. Factories. How have robots been used in the U.S. workforce thus far? Given that the auto industry is the documented leader in the utilization of, of robot workers, looking at that sector can be suggestive for larger patterns or the absence thereof. To date, robots behave very much like machine tools, doing repetitive tasks for which they are programmed, moving heavy items, spraying paint, or installing components on an assembly line. Robots are usually bolted down, heavy, special purpose, and caged for human safety. Several emerging trends suggest adoption of a new generation of robot workers. Rethink Robotics's Baxter robot came to market in 2012. Unlike traditional industrial robots, it is relatively cheap, about 25,000 US dollars, is safe around people, easily programmed and multifunctional. Its target market is small businesses where the robot can free workers to do more interesting and more valuable work, as opposed to picking items off an assembly line and putting them in bins or shipping boxes, for example. In addition to freeing people from repetitive, boring jobs, Baxter is designed to be installed within human workflows, unlike assembly line robots, which are capable of inflicting potentially lethal force. It senses contact and can avoid harming humans. Supply chain. Another trend can be seen in supply chain robotic systems, the most visible example of which is made by Kiva, a Boston firm acquired by Amazon in 2012 and now called Amazon Robotics. Kiva is a perfect example of human-robotic partnership. Humans' eyes and brains can detect patterns far better than robots, and their hands combine touch, adaptability, and nimbleness in ways that far exceed the capabilities of current robot graspers. Robots, on the other hand, are better at repetitive tasks, moving large items, and following barcode stickers on the floor in a pre-arranged pattern. Thus, Kiva never touches an item, but instead moves racks of retail goods from filling to storage areas, and from storage to picking and packing areas. Human workers don't need to walk the long distances characteristic of large distribution centers, and the robots don't have to do hard tasks like visual discrimination or small item picking. Given how unpredictably Amazon behaves, it is significant that the company has not always deployed Kiva systems in the rapid expansion of its global distribution center network. One possible explanation for the apparent incongruity, other than that large corporate acquisitions take years to sort themselves out, is that Amazon was more interested in the software sophistication behind Kiva than in the mechanical devices themselves. An article from 2007 made this point. Kiva warehouses are self-tuning in that slower-selling items are moved into less accessible lower locations, whereas high-velocity items are stocked on the edges of the storing area. Because the Kiva pods work 24 hours a day, moving slow-selling stocks during periods of downtime, for example, can be driven by software rather than a human manager trying to juggle multiple priorities. The article's title, Random Access Warehouses, made precisely this point. The Big Picture One reading of economic history suggests that when a new task gets mechanized or automated, workers find new ways to be involved in the workforce. 
Take one notable example. As of 1970, one-third of women in the United States workforce were secretaries. With the introduction of the personal computer and word processing software, the need for secretaries fell off dramatically, but the overall number of women employed increased. In 1992, Robert Reich, who later became Secretary of Labor in the Clinton administration, predicted the emergence of a three-tier labor market in developed economies. Reich started with personal service jobs in healthcare and retail, to take two huge examples, to which he added a second tier, production workers in a diminishing manufacturing sector, and foresaw the rise of a third, what he called symbolic analysts. This last tier includes financial services, engineering, software, and law. After a surge in its numbers, it is being automated. Big data tools are replacing humans who are not as good as machines in scoring credit ratings or interpreting, interpreting mammograms. As The Economist put it in May 2013, quote, Bank clerks and travel agents have already been co-signed to the dustbin by the thousand. Teachers, researchers, and writers are next, end quote. Accounting and law are both getting offshored and automated. The task of legal discovery used to be labor-intensive and thus both expensive for the client and profitable for the partners who put associates and paralegals to work billing the mountains of hours. Now much of the work can be done by software. Since Reich made his predictions, the degree of U.S. income equality has increased. Gains by the top 20% of the population are largely driven by gains of the top 5% or even 1%. A household of two public school teachers can make $140,000 between them, but that middle income group is not the driving force here. Instead, the number of econ a number of economists argue that large income gains, and thus large increases of income inequality, result from larger returns to the capital rather than labor. The shift toward growth and investment-related income that leaves wage-related growth behind coincides closely with a growing gap between wages and productivity since about 1970. In other words, investments in capital such as computers and other forms of automation drove increases in productivity whose benefits accrued largely to the owners of the capital rather than to workers. Put those two trends together— automation of increasingly complex tasks and increasing returns to capital relative to wages, and the robot would appear to portend bad news for workers. Four developments underlie this negative scenario. First, thanks to economies of scale, learning curves, and Moore's law of microprocessor performance, robots are becoming cheaper every year. Second, given advances in software engineering, Machine vision and other components, along with trickle-down innovation from the high levels of defense-related research and development, robots are also becoming more capable every year. Third, even though wage increases have been minimal, the continued growing rise in health insurance and other expenses incurred by human workers, including the cost of air conditioning, for example, mean that humans are becoming more expensive every year. And fourth, as Illa Norbach of Carnegie Mellon points out, robots don't need to replicate human performance, they need to be just good enough. Working alongside robots, humans will learn how to make best use of robots' strengths and how to best cover for their weaknesses by providing non-machine vision when a robot gets stuck, for example, or by designating self-checkout lanes where customers do most of the work, with a single employee supervising six registers instead of operating one. As we climb the learning curve, business processes will be redesigned around the humans' and robots' respective strengths. 
Given that low-wage laborers and the unemployed often lack both human and financial capital, it's most likely that robots will first be owned by capital rather than by labor. Higher up the wage scale, it's not as straightforward. Quantitative financial service investors can multiply and amplify their expertise by encoding it in computers, trading networks, and other robotic technologies. It's quite possible that radiologists could be early adopters of mammogram screening software, keeping control of the tools within the guild, as it were. Other forecasts are more sanguine. There has always been enough to do to keep most of the workforce busy. Robots will be used for the jobs people didn't want to do anyway. The three Ds of dull, dirty, and dangerous tasks are frequently cited. Experience bears this out. There have been successful tests or deployments of robots in bomb disposal, rescue efforts during a Fukushima-like disaster, repetitive assembly line tasks, even in vacuuming the living room. One school of thought foresees humans having much more leisure time in which to explore and express their interests and talents. Kevin Kelly, a founding editor at Wired, wrote in this vein, quote, We need to let robots take over. They will do jobs we have been doing and do them much better than we can. They will do jobs we can't do at all. They will do jobs we never imagined even needed to be done. And now they will help us discover new jobs for ourselves, new tasks that expand who we are. They will let us focus on becoming more human than we were, end quote. Academic roboticists, when they express an opinion, often fall into this camp. Henrik Christensen of Georgia Tech is well-regarded in his field, though no labor economist. He asserts without evidence that every manufacturing job brought back to the United States from offshore, a move made possible by robotics in many cases, also generates 1.3 other jobs in associated areas. The advantages of robots, like lower costs, higher precision, and support for the requirements of clean rooms and similarly difficult environments for humans, make the number plausible. Even when products are made by robots, the manufacture of these products still needs to be supported by human processes, such as procurement, accounting, repair, and marketing. But the jobs question is not merely a matter of quantity. Frank Levy and Richard Murnane are labor economists who study the effect of information technologies on work. They suggest that to address the new division of labor between people and computers, there are four fundamental questions we need to answer. First, what kind of tasks do human perf humans perform better than computers? Two, what kind of tasks do computers perform better than humans? Three, in an increasingly computerized world, what well-paid work is left for people to do both now and in the future? And four, how can people learn the skills to do this work? Displacing an assembly line worker who puts handles on the car door does not free up a nurse to help address a shortage in that field, or a robot programmer, maintainer, or even cleaner. That is, the skills being replaced may well relate to jobs that did little to enhance human dignity in the first place, but at least they were jobs, and the path from displacement to redeployment is not at, at all well-defined. Employers frequently invoke a skills gap and put pressure on schools and universities to update curricula. It's a valid concern. But Peter Capelli from the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania also directs attention to employers that are reticent to train workers. There's also the question of how much employers' heavy reliance on deficient resume screening software may be driving artificially high unemployment. Thus, robotics' effect on, an on employment has many second-order effects, 
and it's going to be difficult to get clear answers to what these might be anytime soon. Because there are few one-for-one equivalencies in any area of economics, particularly in the area of employment, we can defer the issue of robots' job displacement for two reasons. First, the confusion over what constitutes a robot makes matters difficult. Almost anything that relates to a tool or or artifact of any sort might qualify. Second, it may be that job displacement by robots is farther along than most analyses would suggest. As of mid-2013, there were 11.76 million unemployed persons versus 143.9 million people who were employed. Simple math puts the mid-2013 unemployment rate at about 8%. With technical adjustments, the official rate produced is 7.6%. What is not counted in these numbers are people who gave up looking, people who were working part-time when they wanted and needed to work full-time, and retirees, some of whom left work involuntarily. Another group of people, 14 million of them each month, who are not working, collect disability payments. The rate of disability filings has nearly doubled since 1996. More than one-third of those claims relate to back pain and musculoskeletal problems, and another one-fifth relate to mental illness and developmental disabilities, all conditions difficult to diagnose with any degree of confidence. Labor economist David Autor argues that disability is, quote, a kind of ugly secret of the American labor market. Part of the reason our unemployment rates have been low until recently is that a lot of people who would have trouble finding jobs are on a different program, end quote. The fact that the rate of disability filings doubled in that period that coincided with heavy technological employment unemployment like offshoring, call center automation, self-service retail, suggests that as Brynjolfsson and McAfee have argued, new technologies are creating wealth and productivity, but not enough jobs for those displaced. Adding 7 million disability claims, half of the current total, into the ranks of the jobless would drive the official unemployment rate to a politically dangerous 12%, again not counting underemployment or premature retirements. Just to show how complicated the picture is, some of the people disabled, on paper anyway, by back and related issues could be partnered with robots that could lift and move things. The scenario raises a thorny question. What will individuals with lifting limitations and often only a high school education bring to the human-robot partnership? Such questions will become more pressing sooner rather than later. In the interim, we are in the middle of a vast experiment involving millions of workers' lives and livelihoods. Thank you for watching. Please like, subscribe, and visit my channel for more exciting content.